welcome to the Carefree Black Nerd Podcast. Uh, this is a weekly conversation about representation in comics and related media. I am your host, Rain Coleman, and this is issue number 12. The final issue of the year, the final issue of the pilot, (laughs) how appropriate it ended up on 12. Um, and because of which I'm going to cover something a little differently, um, this week instead of covering one person or one character or, uh, whatnot, I'm actually going to cover several, um, I've mentioned my love and devotion and affection and every other thesaurus synonym for me loving this cast of characters, um, Marvel came out with a book entitled Generation X back in 1994, I believe, or 1997, and um, and I am going to uh, focus on them today, not as a whole, just um, in this one particular issue, with it being December and being holiday times with the Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, and all that, um, I thought this was most appropriate. Um, I'll be covering issue number four, which was the kind of Christmas holiday-ish issue of the original run of Generation X. Uh, but before going into the actual issue, instead of drop you in code, because some people might not know who the hell a Generation X is, um, I'm going to go over some of the the cast and whatnot. Uh, let's see. Generation X, of course, is a book published by Marvel Comics. Um... The cast of characters first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 318. That was back in November of 94. Um, They were all created by Scott Lipdale and Chris Bacallo, who, if you remember, is one of my all-time favorite artists, mainly because of this series. He's now currently working on um, Doctor Strange. Let's see. Okay. Generation X is a fictional superhero team, of course. Um, published by Marvel Comics. It's a spinoff of the X-Men, which was, the team was created by Scott Liddell. And um, I've said in passing before, but Generation X is more or less like how the original first five X-Men were to people of that time and how the new mutants were to people of who were reading comics around the 80s in that time. They're the like little side teenage team because of course at this point by the 90s the X-Men are I don't give a damn what way you split it these are grown ass people running around um, shooting and fighting stuff looking like they're all muscle bound and extremely uh, cut for no reason <laughs> um, and this is kind of return to form for Marvel where they came out with their teenage book to again get the younger readers and then those who have enjoyed this type or style of um of team from before uh what else generation x and this is why um i'm so in love with this book and why i kind of want to focus on it now is that it consists of teenage mutants who are designed to reflect you know different complexities and issues that young people uh face in that demographic so of course generation x x is appropriate to the x lines but that's 
actually the target generation of their time, Generation X. Um, but they're so, it's such a multicultural team that for me, although I have said before how it wasn't, I don't see a lot of representation, this is one of those instances from the late 80s, early 90s, and straight through like with the Saturday morning cartoons and different series that would come on where you do have this mix of different nationalities, religious beliefs, and and not just the diversity in the power set. Um, Generation X were, they were based out of the Massachusetts Academy, which I believe um, was where the Hel- Hellions, or Hellens, Hellions, who were the um, rival team to the New Mutants back in the day, uh, that's where they were based out of when Emma Frost, the White Queen, was their um, headmaster, which is repeated here because the Massachusetts Academy is where Generation X was um, based out of, and one of their headmasters was the White Queen, Emma Frost, who, if you're reading current comics now, she is... Um, on the X team, she's been uh, the lover of Cyclops for quite some time. They've both ran their own division of X-Men or X-Men Rogues or whatever. Um, and me, being introduced to comics and latching on to Generation X as my go-to team and my go-to comic, I grew up seeing her in a certain light. And so when I took a break from comics and I came back, um, only to see that now she was with Scott Summers, Cyclops, and she was this femme fatale to be reckoned with. It's she's not straying too far from wh- how she was presented before, but it's like um, let's say it's like you see something as a kid, say like Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, and you see Dumbledore as this magical wizard who's this good guy, but then you become an adult and you look at harry potter as a whole and you see uh he's not such a good guy like he's doing the same things he did as a kid but as a kid i read a lot of his actions as being the good guy but as an adult with that new understanding you see nah this motherfucker wasn't that good so it's kind of the same here um i always knew that the white queen was like a reformed villain back in the generation x days in the late 90s and early 2000s but um Seeing her being the reformed villain and then joining up with Cyclops and running the X-Men was a, was not the direction I expected this to go based off the way that the Generation X line ended, which I've never been happy about, but that's another story for another day. Um, the book's um, original creators actually left in 1997, and the series was canceled at issue 75 in 2001. Which is a glimpse into why I did not like the way this ended or that it ended at all. <laughs> but, um, again, okay, going forward now, the team, the X, the, uh, Generation X, um, unlike, like, the X-Men and the New Mutants, Generation X, they didn't attend the School for the Gifted Youngsters, so that already set them apart. Um, they didn't learn from Professor X, which I appreciated because even though I watched, the X-Men on TV and I had the comics before I knew about Generation X. I don't, I can't say that I was upset, but I knew there was something off to the way Xavier was written and the way that he handled the X-Men and mutants in general. Like I knew he was, I know he's supposed to read as the good guy and they always have him the analog for Martin Luther King, which I think is problematic in itself, but he never came off as, 
whole wholly good or or all or all pure to me and being able to have this team of new kids who were so far removed in age from him because although professor x is older than like the first five beast iceman uh cyclops marvel girl and angel he's vastly older than the generation x group who if continuity continued they would be about in their late 20s early 30s at this point um and i think xavier would probably be in his late 70s if if continuity in comics ran as they do in real life um but i appreciated that they weren't they weren't being overseen by him but by um white queen emma frost and sean cassidy banshee who also was an x-men uh some time ago i like this because the dynamic with having two people one an ex-villain who is a telepath which is the white queen who is now using her services for good that's so many different ways you can take that story and there were so many different stories told uh especially with her and one of the main women of color because they they conflicted with attitudes it was just such it was so good to see that especially as a kid seeing this rage against the machine kind of sort of this um back and forth tit for tat with two women who were powerful in their own right with the like supernatural but even down to the most human element both were just opinionated women who didn't take shit from anybody less alone each other um then you also have banshee who was the ex x-man um who was part of a team he has children of his own so for him that xavier type fatherly mentality translated well but even better with him being someone who because xavier has kids now but he's just a shit father whereas banshee he had issue with his own daughter Teresa, but he still they did a good job at writing him as the protector as the because he wasn't he's by no means is he as powerful as the white queen there's no i won't i don't believe that for a second if anyone tries to sell you that lie uh i got a fucking house to sell you on top of a live active volcano but he was very much that human element that father figure that um that i don't want to say underdog but that tenacious strong male character that i think if these stories were real and happening in real life he would be one of the greatest assets to that team um not that that tangent is over uh banshee is an irish uh redhead or orange-haired man he has a sonic scream which again depending on who's writing it it gives you a whole range of abilities mainly he used it to fly and to attack his opponents from far off whereas white queen the former villain she's um a telepath which and that has a lot going on with it too but she also possesses this diamond heart skin exterior and I'm unclear if that's a second mutation, like her secondary mutation, or if that's something she's had within her all along. Because it, in the early days of the Generation X, and I believe even of her appearances in Marvel Comics, that wasn't a thing. But I don't know if someone just was interested in writing that in, um, and then that became something. I'd have to do a little bit more research on that. But if um, you look back as far as i think it was x2 or x3 one of the uh 
the Fox X-Men movies, there's a scene when all of the children are held hostage and they're breaking out of their cages and they're attacked by something. The details are fuzzy. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. But that character, even though she has no speaking role, um, she quickly transforms into her diamond form to protect the rest of the kids, which suggests that that is White Queen Emma Frost because there's no other person that I know of in the Marvel Universe that has that ability. Um, all that aside, those were the two headmasters. And um, let's see, but Generation X, the team consisted of a few a few raging teenagers, um, one of which was Chamber. That was his uh, team name. His actual name was Jonathan Startsmore. He's a British guy. He, um, tall white guy brown hair he is the quintessential like attractive white european he was that rock star um beatles sort of um metal guy and uh he has telepathic abilities but the difference with him is when his powers manifested they blew an entire hole in his chest so from like his navel all the way up to his nose it's nothing but pure psychic energy that manifests as fire and um i had never seen anything like that as a kid you know i've seen the beautiful glamorous heroes with their powers that never detracted from the way they looked even in fantastic four with ben Grimm, sure he was all rocks but he was still kind of that oddball that you knew he was an attractive white man before and now he just has rocks all over his body it wasn't anything that took you away or um at least for me i don't know anyone when who was maybe reading fantastic four when it came out they may feel differently but i always felt like ben Grimm was just like the hulk you're just an attractive male who can change or who changed into a different form it was never it was always surface level with them, whereas this guy, and there's the, that was a major part of his story throughout the run of these comics, was that he dealt a lot with having that mutation alter his physical appearance, where he wasn't this guy who could rely on his looks anymore, and he had to keep himself bandaged up, and he had to speak into your mind because he had no mouth. It was just, it was always, it was it was always good to see him on screen, quote unquote, on panel, and um. And to actually get more of um, something a little deeper than, oh, I just feel like I'm ugly. Like, I think he might have been an analog or a stand-in for persons with who are differently abled. Um, yeah, so, but I guess, which is all in the eye of the beholder, he didn't have any need to eat or drink or breathe. So, for him, existing was easy, in a sense. Um, who else? There is Husk, uh, is her code name, and Paige Guthrie is her, Guthrie, Guthrie, is her, um, is her actual name. And those of you who are familiar with X-Men who know about the character Cannonball, she is his younger sister. I think it's like 12 of them. They're from Kentucky, some small, look, farm in Kentucky. Well, this blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman she was the uh, daughter of a coal miner and she could shed her skin at will and it would reveal a different substance every time so while she's fighting i know in the first um issue of generation x they were chasing after 
a character who I'll get to who has diamond hard razor skin. Well, she was able to rip off her skin and reveal a rock hard uh, exterior. So she looked exactly the same. She looked like herself, but instead of having flesh and hair, it was the whatever substance, be it diamond, coal, rock. Um, I want to say she even transformed into a liquid stasis before, but I'm not, I'm not sure if that was the main continuity line or if that was the Age of Apocalypse line. Um, of course, the next up is Jubilee, who is uh, everyone's favorite mall rat. She's the Chinese-American woman from Beverly Hills, California. She can produce explosive energy through her hands. She is, for anyone who has seen X-Men back in the 90s, she is a figurehead. She is the pink glasses, yellow trench coat, uh, little shorts and boots and gloves wearing valley girl. Um, I really enjoyed seeing her in this series because she was written as much more than just some, I don't know, some dense bobblehead of a woman. Like she had, she was annoying at times. I mean, she was, she took the lead a lot of times. She um, dealt with having been an X-Men and then being what she felt like was demoted to a kid's team, um, which I thought was a very good um good way to write her because honestly again if these stories were real she spent countless years excuse me years with wolverine who is regardless if you like him or not is a very substantial and prominent member in this lexicon in this pantheon of marvel comics so having that training underneath your belt and then also working with the X-Men for years before a Generation X was even thought of, it's like, yeah, she should probably be a senior level member of this team. But that being said, um, Jubilee was, her interactions, as important as they were, I don't think anyone took the time to write her as being actually trained by X-Men for combat. It was more or less she was there. She was another mutant to protect. She joined the team. So um, seeing those first couple arcs where she dealt with being, in her eyes, demoted to JV when she was on varsity this whole time, and then being a Chinese-American woman, which I, I can't speak on because, of course, that's not that's not my background, but I felt like that wasn't skirted away like it wasn't it wasn't ignored i felt like um in the way in which she was drawn i'll say because she although she was lighter skin and had fine hair she never to me looked like the white characters in the book like there was a distinction so i feel like there was an appropriate level of um of exposure there and with this being a multicultural cultural cast of characters in different shades and in different power sets and physically just different from each other i always appreciated that although there were two white women on the team blonde hair blue eyed when she stood next to them she didn't look like just a blonde hair blue eyed woman who eyes may be a little different like to me she looked like a chinese person but again that's not the culture i'm drawing from so if i am mistaken I do apologize, but for me, growing up, the little black boy I was, that's how she looked to me. Um, and my favorite, well, it's a tie. I'll say my second favorite. My second favorite member is the 
beautiful Monet St. Croix. Her code name was simply M, the capital letter M. She was now Monet M was and still is one of the most poised, uh, attractive, powerful women in the Marvel Universe, period. If you think you like you some Superman, I'm sure Monet can whoop Superman's ass, wipe the floor with him. This was a woman of color coming from um, a very rich family. She was born in, uh, born into a rich family from Monaco. She could fly. She had super strength and telepathic abilities. She was very arrogant, which annoyed her teammates, of course. Um, but that aside, Monet always had this level of, um, I don't want to say snobbishness because she was snobby, but her, understandably so, this is the world she came from, but she was always written as a powerful character aside from her mutant powers, which I always appreciated because the way, the way that she interacted with everyone else was entirely different. In the first issue of Generation X, when everyone was moving into the school, and everybody had their books and they had their little uh personal effects and their bags this woman showed up with five uh moving vans moving trucks excuse me full of stuff it was like it was setting that tone for her to be this uh kind of villain amongst the the um villain amongst the the students but she was such a oh my god i don't I read her as so much more than just this snotty girl, this snotty rich girl. For me, she was this woman of color who came from wealth, who carried herself in a way that was very different from everyone else. And yes, at times that made her snobbish, but there's nothing that she said that she, one, couldn't back up, and two, wasn't true. Like, she was one of the most powerful members on that team. Still, in Marvel Comics, she is one of the most powerful women in comics period and i feel like she's not she's given a bad rap because as the series went on more stuff about her family and personal life came out but what i did like about her is that for as powerful as she is um some of the things that they attributed to her being like this genius level intellect and her being so um so good at everything and so perfect was not attributed to her mutant power that was just her and it's like, you see this woman who's capable of so much, so much physical damage, so much, you know, magical mutant stuff, but strip all that away and she's still a force to be reckoned with based off of her skill set alone. Um, it was, it came out that she was her father's favorite child. Her father had four kids, her and her two younger twin sisters and her older brother. And everyone knew she was the favorite, and it didn't, um, I think it bothered her brother, but her two younger sisters, <clears throat> they were so far apart in age, I don't think it was ever written that they felt slighted by their father, but just her as a character, it's, talk about someone to latch on to, to see a brown woman on screen, be it Netflix, be it a TV show, be it, um, on the big screen in movies, being on the pages of comics consistently, a brown woman who was on the cover of Vanity Fair in her adult life, who has a superhuman IQ, who has 
who was capable of all this physical power as well as mental power as well as having a slick mouth again like i said she was the one who the white queen would go at every now and then because they were so similar in power set and in background they both came from wealth they both didn't take shit from no anyone they both were telepaths they like it was, <sighs> i digress but I'll say that if you have a daughter, if you have a niece, if you have a young woman in your life, young girl, find a way to get Monet St. Croix in front of her. Now, the whole snotty arrogance may not be your cup of tea, but at her core, this woman who possesses so much power really relied on her intellect more than anything. Because no matter how strong she is, if she can't see her strength helping them win a the fight, she didn't use it. And that's what I liked about her. She was very calculated from day one. And um, as a kid, there was a lot of things that I didn't see. But going back and reading through that, um, the first couple arcs of that series, it's like, oh, this woman was on her shit. Like, they wrote her as more than just her powers and more than just the token black girl. And I, I appreciate that. Um, next up is Skin. That's his code name. This is Angelo Espinante. Espinosa, Espinosa. We're gonna go with that. Um, and he, I had my issues with him because he was essentially a walking stereotype. But because I was so young, a lot of that didn't hit me like it does now. Um, I really appreciated this character. He was a former teenage gang member on the streets of L.A. You can guess what he looked like, Angelo Espinosa. The, the Hispanic Cholo gang member, like, <sighs> but um, his mutant power manifested and he had an extra six feet of skin. He could stretch his skin, his fingers, his arms, his neck, anything. Um, one that helped with battles, of course, it helped with <laughs> grabbing things, but he his power is one that I feel like was never used to its potential. Um, he was a traditional looking Hispanic person, but when his mutant powers manifested, his skin became a gray, a grayish color, and it would sag at times. Um, unlike Mr. Fantastic, uh, of the Fantastic Four, who could stretch his arms and fingers and all that, and still re retain his Caucasian exterior, I appreciated that skin being a child or a young adult or a kid who came into his mutant powers did have that sagging skin mainly because it for me felt more realistic like okay i have this nobility and i'm not able to control it in a way that um like mr fantastic can i'm at this school learning how to control my powers so we having gray saggy skin is okay my issue with that is that over time he did not improve in a way that seemed realistic like he still had the sagging gray skin over time they wrote him with 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 um more pronounced features where it wasn't as saggy but it's like i still have this gray skin i still look like i don't know this monster and over 75 issues there's no way that anyone could have kind of move this character along to where he could control more i don't know it's just for me personally i feel like he, they did him a disservice um and then even when he had his big moment to shine 
and I think back in the 30s issues, the 30s issues, he um was still running around with, one, with his ex-girlfriend who was also an ex-gang member. It's like, mm, is that the route we have to take with this Hispanic person? Like, but I digress again. <laughs> um, along with his sagging gray skin, he had painful headaches all the time, which I thought that was pretty on par for what that would be if this was real so um some stuff they got right with him a lot they didn't now my favorite all-time number one a spoon coon favorite character is sink everett thomas he's an african-american teenager from st louis um very pleasant very supportive very nice he was like that all-american boy that happy he wasn't he was very they were all written as children but he was very much the happy child of the group he um suffered from <laughs> what was going on back in the 90s whereas when you drew black men most of the time they just had a bald head <laughs> or they had like some ridiculous looking hair that looked like you drew a white man and just made his skin brown but for all of that he still read as a happy brown boy it wasn't some false reality <laughs> but um and then to think that when he was introduced i think he was 16 and for him to have this ball head it was like oh that's not too realistic but i'll go with it um he is my favorite mainly because his mutant ability allows him to sink s-y-n-c-h into the genetic code of any mutant nearby so for him um Let's say he's standing next to Cyclops. He automatically gets Cyclops optic blast. But also part of his mutant ability, though he can copy your powers, he was always able to kind of mutate your own power so he could do things with it that you weren't able to because you were limited either by possessing the power yourself or you just hadn't advanced to that level yet. And they showed that quite a few times and it made a lot of his... um the people he interacted with kind of jealous that this man can one grab onto my powers and copy them and so quickly and then two he's able to mutate them and use them in ways that either i can't or i never thought to and um sadly he's deceased now which is spoilers one of my biggest issues with generation x and my fingers are crossed that back in march or may or whenever resurrection starts that they bring this man back from the dead because this is a young black man who had so much potential. When he died, I cried. I, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. No, I was, uh, I was devastated. I was highly upset. But um, after all that, that is the introduction of the Generation X lineup. Uh, there's a few more here and there, but for the issue for today this is pretty much it this is all you need to know um ta -ta 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 -ta. so we're gonna stop right here for a little bit all right now we're back we're back we're back um now picking up the actual issue itself um wanna start with uh generation x this is issue number four it's their holiday special issue entitled Between the Cracks. Uh, the story, of course, is by Scott Lobdell and Chris Pachalo. Uh, Mark Buchanan, oh, excuse me, Mark Buckingham was the inker. Steve, and I'm about to butcher this name, 
Pusierto. Ugh. Steve did this. <laughs> Steve and Electric Crayon did the colors. Richard Starking and Comic Craft did the letters. And Bob Hera was the editor. And Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. Um, in this particular issue, the cast of Generation X was Jubilee, Skin, Sink, M, Banshee, Chamber, Husk, Emma Frost, the White Queen, but she went by Emma Frost, and uh, Penis. Penance is a character I didn't go into. Um, she's the red-skinned, diamond-hard, razor-sharp-skinned woman. Um, she's mute. She's a child just like, well, she's a young kid just like the rest of Generation X. She looked to be about 14 to 16 years of age. She was wrapped in bandages with buckles, kind of a golf look, but because her skin was so sharp, that particular leather was the only thing that um, kept her, um, that didn't rip off of her. Uh, that's kind of all you need to know about her for now, for this story. Now, the A plot of this story is that it's a Christmas story set around this freakishly disfigured boy. Um, he just wants a chance to learn, but society won't let him. Of course, the common mutant story. Uh, let's see, he takes a class, and then that teacher, Mr. Lorenzo, he holds, holds, he holds him, the teacher, and the class hostage. Uh, while he's outside, both Generation X and the Orphan Maker arrive. Now, the Orphan Maker is a character who was kind of the first big bad of Generation X. Him and the nanny was going around kind of killing the parents of mutants, mutant children, so that they could raise them. Uh, yeah, it's it's a whole big thing. I'll get into that once I start covering the Generation X uh, series. Um, they, they both wanted to help, Generation X and the Orphan Maker. Um, Banshee, Skin, and M dealt with the Orphan Maker, while Jubilee snuck inside to the school to find the children and release them and blah, whatever. Um, let's see, the B-plot is that Husk, Paige Guthrie, watches Chamber, uh, care for Penance. In the X-Men series, we all know about the Danger Room, the big room where everyone goes and trains and it becomes different settings and you can fight and all this. In Generation X, they didn't have a Danger Room. They had what they coined as the Danger Grotto, which is essentially on campus, this huge kind of greenhouse, um... That's where Penance lived, and mm, it looked kind of like a big jungle, but they would train and fight and do, you know, whatever there. Um, there, that's where Penance lived, and that's where Jonathan uh, Chamber would go and hang out with her. Let's see. Now, Banshee, this is... This is kind of essentially the wrap-up of the story. And it might not sound very Christmassy or very holiday-y, but that was the backdrop, is that this was um, kind of the first Christmas for, or the first holiday time for the students. And uh, Banshee, the headmaster, was taking M, Skin, and Sink, and Jubilee to uh, Faybrook, Maine for a field trip. Uh, while they're on the way, they're stopped by armed police, and they're diverted. They're diverted off course, of course. <laughs> never heard it off course of course um, in Faybrook, Maine the armed police they surrounded a local school where the mutant boy Elliot has taken Mr. Lorenzo and five kids hostage because Mr. Lorenzo promised that he would help Elliot get into the school 
but the board rejected all his pleas. Now, the school um, came off as an elementary school. I can't quite remember. You could probably read it as like an elementary middle school, but I'm sure it was elementary just for that effect of innocence and being in danger to kind of really um, hit its mark. Um, and Elliot is really disfigured. He looks... He almost, if you imagine someone shaped like a giant egg and have like this huge growth on his arm, like they took the time to make sure you knew that this boy was mutated, was disfigured. Um, at the Xavier Massachusetts Academy, uh, Penance, the red-skinned diamond hard character, excuse me, she was exploring the biosphere or the danger grotto um, when Chamber offers her some apples and she accepts. Now, this is a very important part of Generation X history because, one, Penis loves apples. I believe Jubilee was like her main caretaker who would feed her and kind of sit around and talk with her about just as much or maybe a little less than Jonathan did, uh, Chamber. Mainly because, one, Chamber couldn't speak. And I wasn't, I'm trying to remember, because Penis was mute, I don't think... Mm. And I'm probably going to kick myself for being wrong. <clears throat> I don't think she could hear you telepathically. <clears throat> or perhaps she could. Like, she couldn't speak, of course. And she would try to interact. But I can't remember. Because I think White Queen could not read her mind. And that was one of the limitations they had with dealing with her and with training her. Um, But Husk, she's watching from the computer room. You know, looking... Looking at, and this is kind of where the seeds of love fall in place, where she's admiring him and these kind acts and everything, which is kind of sad because it's very intrusive that this woman is sitting up watching this genuine exchange between two characters who are mm, sharing on that common otherness like they aren't like the other characters like no matter how mutated you are and how persecuted you are by society for the most part this whole cast can walk around and pass as human whereas jonathan is unable to and penis damn sure is unable to with her having red skin even her hair which was usually slick not slick back it was like pointed back was hard razor sharp hair and her having red skin and blue eyes and looking so far removed from human. She was humanoid, but she looked like what one would think was a demon. It's like for this woman, this blonde haired, blue eyed white woman who has all this privilege and has this human privilege, this white privilege, and this privilege of being a woman protected by society to be so intrusive on this moment. You can say it's just comics, but it really is that deep. And what I like is that um, Emma Frost walks in and she calls her on it. And it's like, girl, in so many words, what the hell are you doing? Like, these people are, it's like being an outsider to a community and looking at them, a community that's in need of help or a community that's operating on its own or a community of people who have who are lgbt or who are disfigured or who maybe have cancer or anything and you're kind of 
creeping on them you're <laughs> you're not engaging in conversation you're not assisting you're not trying to figure out how you can help or what you can do or you're not even leaving them to their own devices you're got this creep mode i don't have any other word for it that girl was creeping hell but um the as weird and odd as that was that is one of those things that made her fall for him because of his kindness and what he was doing although for him it wasn't let me be kind in this girl because of anything um um devious it was just uh this is a kindred spirit this is someone who the other kids are forgetting this is someone who can't go on a field trip to maine with the rest of the students like so i'm it's husk is a creep <laughs> and uh chamber is a good guy hell um so again emma frost comes in and calls her on it and they have this little banter and i loved that even though these were children between 14 and 17 years old <laughs> emma frost had she did not hold up on these smart ass comments and on cutting these kids at their knees because a lot of the times though they are children they would just get out of line and it's just like instead of someone blaming on oh they're just kids no she would let them know you you being you're being weird you're being odd you're being destructive like what are you doing and it was in such a snotty way you read her as the villain because of her arrogance but essentially she was telling these kids things that they needed to know things that they should have been listening to and lessons that they should have taken but <laughs> and that just being one of the instances like yeah you might like this boy but eh, find another way to show it because him being telepathic where he can speak through his mind eh, you i think he would even think this is odd that you're creeping on him like this girl um let's see but back at faybrook the orphan maker who looks at this point he got a new a new set of armor um it looks anyone who's familiar with the onslaught villain from the 90s and x-men comics he has that same look it's like this kind of egg torso body with these mechanic arms and legs and all these wires it's a very aggressive looking um looking suit and it it gives off even when he's standing still it gives off a threat it doesn't look like um a nice wholesome inviting design he looks threat threatening and um that the the team got that got that point across very well because even though i know he's the orphan maker and i know he's the bad guy and i know he's you know kind of insane or he's been manipulated because i believe the orphan maker was a child who was um, stolen from his parents but his look is so aggressive and so threatening that it it come and then it's it's purple which in comics is kind of mutants um or villains are always like purple black and red or dark red or something like he, he gives off villain when you first see him but the orphan maker he's hidden amongst the crowd outside the school uh, but he's in an ice cream van which is so <laughs> it's not strange but it's like it's middle of dead middle of winter um at this police kind of standoff and you have this huge ice cream truck just sitting outside and nobody questioned uh what is that and what is that doing here but that's kind of his command center where he's reporting back to nanny who's the mother figure for him um talking about he'll make her proud 
Well, Banshee and the Keys, they arrive in Faybrook um, after they became suspicious over the armed police. Uh, later on, they well, soon they learned that the mutant boy had hostages. Banshee, M, and Skin, they take out the SWAT team covering the school. Um, Sink tries to kind of sink in with Elliot so he can, one, see what they're dealing with. Because if this is a mutant who has children hostage, we would like to help him, maybe even accept him and invite him to our school. But... We can't ignore the crimes that you're committing now, and we definitely can ignore it if you end up killing someone, mainly one of those five children. Well, after he tries hard to sink in with Elliot, um, it he tried to focus on Elliot, but he actually kind of mm, was drawn to another mutant and uh, another mutant signature so and this is a way that his powers hadn't worked before because he could essentially focus on who he wants and then lock up with that person um instead it went to the other mutant and before they could find out who it was the orphan maker burst out of his van starts firing at elliot's parents who are out there and they're they're with the crowd trying to plead for him to come out and leave everyone alone in this situation but he um they arrived there Excuse me. He jumped out the van and started firing at the parents. They arrived on the scene kind of to talk him down. And this is the quote. This is, uh, I thought it was so interesting. <laughs> and because it's kind of telling at one, where comics, what they were, what was going on at the time in the 90s. And then I think it also applies to some things that we have, see going on now. And this is the Orphan Maker. He says, Man, you flat scans make me sick. Every time you manage to corner a mutant, you start waving the big guns. And you say you're doing it in the name of protecting yourselves. Well, guess what? Now you really do have a reason to be scared. And that reason is me, the Orphan Maker. Don't let the armor fool you. It's new. Now, going back to the social climate that we have now, and the way that we are getting gunned down, and with this new villainous presidential elect that we have things this paragraph of words written back in 1994 seems to be so appropriate you whoever fill in the blank make me sick every time you manage to corner a mutant mutant substitute for person of color you start waving your guns and say you're doing it in the name of protecting yourselves it's the same thing and it's so sad that because mostly comics started off as a political propaganda as a way to kind of get the message out at uh, we're at war against this person or these people are bad and whatnot so for people to take comics and not take them seriously as if oh they're just some joke it's like that's not where we started and that's damn sure not where we've been comics have always been an easier stand in for a larger um a lot to have a larger voice whereas the x-men although they were all cisgendered white people, were always a fill-in for the civil rights movement and for things that were happening to black people and people of color under this American government. So, yes, this is just the comic. Yes, this is 22 pages of color and line work and characters doing fantastical things that aren't possible for real, but at its core, it's always been a way to get your message across. Even if you're... A Republican or you have views that differ farly from mine or anyone else's comics are still a way that you can get that message across so they've always been political and when I hear people say things like oh it's just comics or why do you have these conventions and why is this so important and what does it matter if Wonder Woman is black and things of that nature it's like this is exactly why because 
although we have our history books which history is always written in favor of the oppressor we also have comics we have this medium where you can't hide from what's going on in addition to social media and all these other mediums that we have we can now get our stories out and be they 17 20 years later to see as sad as it is that this message that the orphan maker gave about mutants still relates to what we're going through now it's also fascinating to see that back in 1994-1997 these stories were being told and it's important that they're not brushed away now um so that's that yes <laughs> that's, that's my rant um after the orphan maker comes out and fires at the parents banshee who has the sonic scream he releases a scream and it waves the bullets away you know it diverts them so they don't kill elliot's parents um right after he does it or as he does that m and skin they both attack the orphan maker Meanwhile, cut to Jubilee, she <laughs> she snuck into the school through the basement, jumps into the room expecting a battle with this big evil mutant, but instead she finds out that the children have been released, and sad to say, <laughs> this is very heavy for a children's book, but Mr. Lorenzo had died of a heart attack. The stress of the situation from him caring for Elliot, wanting Elliot to be accepted, but also knowing that Elliot was a threat to the innocent children who were in there it's like again let's assume that all this is real and this is happening for real mr lorenzo wasn't an old man i think he probably read as like 30s mid 30s maybe early 40s but the stress of him being so caring and empathetic and trying to protect the five little kids and Elliot as well as keep the kids safe from Elliot and having all this compassion for him it's just like man it's one of them damn if you do damn if you don't situations and he just got the short end of the stick and um I actually like that they killed this character because in addition to the innocent children being directly affected or in danger with him dying it's this is a one-shot issue, so it's not like it's part of a larger arc, but that give that gives this um, issue a lot of weight. Um, the fact that this man who spread himself so thin, trying his damnedest to not just appease everyone, but to do the right thing in every instance, him being the one to die, gives it so much weight. Because you have the the threat of violence against these innocent children. But you also have that Elliot as a child who's just trying to go to school. He's just trying to be like the other kids and he's unable to. So Mr. Lorenzo is there, one, to take care of all six kids, the five kids and Elliot, but also to make sure Elliot isn't a threat to the five innocent kids and to also kind of mediate the situation between Elliot and the SWAT team that's outside. And it's just like what pains me reading through that is that his parents yeah they were there like oh Elliot come outside but it's like what are you doing to add to the situation like this is your child he's going through these things he's gotten this far removed from what is normal and yet you're outside saying oh please come home what else are you doing you failed this child because why is he why is he now to this point where he feels so inadequate um that he's taking this course of action um let's see after that he um 
after that, um, we cut to outside where Skin uh, has made an attack on the Orphan Maker's armor, and because of which, because this is new armor, it's kind of new technology, it's fused together and it makes him lose his power. But as the Orphan Maker is fleeing, he yells back to Elliot's parents that he has no need to orphan Elliot because they did it themselves years ago. Now, if there ever was a time to cry some thug tears, this is the moment. Because after all of this, after everything has already happened in this book, to show that the parents have failed him, although there's no rule book on being a parent, that's understood, but you still have not met the needs of this child or found a way to get him the help that he needed. Now, I know this is two sides to every story, and there's an uh, argument and a conversation to be made pro Elliot's parents, but in the way that it's presented in this book and in the interactions that they've had with him and the police and the orphan maker, it's like, you have felt this child. Like, you, you haven't done the things that uh, would have helped him, or if you have, you haven't done enough. And that's not that's a heavy thing to say, but for the orphan maker to acknowledge or to recognize that they have orphaned him years ago because they failed him. He's essentially alone. His parents are part of the collective of people who are against him in one way or the other. And yes, he's being extreme in this moment, but there were things that led up to this moment that his parents were not proactive in taking care of or dealing with and it's just like man after all of this to have the orphan maker whose job is to kill parents and make children orphans tell you oh no need you've done it yourself that is a slap in the face that had to have stung like a ugh, like some and sadly if we couldn't get any sadder or any more depressing in this story Sink finds out that Elliot is not even a mutant because Elliot had no mutant aura to sync up with. So out of this whole time, out of all this confusion, out of the death of Mr. Lorenzo, after the releasing of hostages, after the SWAT team showing up, after Elliot's parents being shown for not being good, after all of this, he's not even a mutant. So there's not even a place for you at our school for mutants because one, you'd just be in harm's way. If we get attacked... There's nothing you can do to take care of yourself. And two, you have parents who are alive, so it's not like we can just become your guardians. But then you're with parents who don't know what to do with you and aren't doing a good job taking care of you. It's like, ah, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're stuck in this limbo of being this disfigured, quote-unquote, monster, and that's all you are. And it's so sad. Um... Yeah, after all of that, and I don't believe Elliot showed up again in Marvel Comics, like, at all, but this was such a heavy story, this wasn't a cheerful holiday story, and I appreciated that, because it was, I mean, it had everything comics have, fighting, action, powers being used, but, oh, that's being on the surface, but beneath it, it's like, these are actual struggles that people have been through, and for this person who, I'll see if I can't put a picture up, um, probably on my Instagram, and uh, and showcase this character. It's like, Elliot was... I don't know. Elliot, man, that's that's a sad story. He wasn't even a mutant. Like, that's the takeaway from all this. Whereas you would have had this already um, established, ingrained 
group to latch on to, you don't even have that. It's like, man, that is so, so sad. Uh, but that's it. That's the end of that story. And it's, huh, Elf, Elliot is orphaned. Uh, Mr. Lorenzo is dead. There was no field trip. It's, uh, man, it was, it was heavy. But it is a good book. And even though it's a one shot and it doesn't really affect the rest of the, uh, the generation it doesn't have lasting effects whereas it's referenced constantly it's still such a good story that uh i think it's fine as a one shot yeah if you can get your hands on issue number four of generation x from february to uh 1994 get it like this was a good this is a good series but this book in particular was just it had so much of what you want and for an older more advanced reader and not to say children can't pick up on certain um certain cues of certain things going on but it's just like this story is so much more than just a disfigured kid or a monster looking kid you know not being able to go to school but man oh so sad um but also just kind of a little extra the final page of this book show jubilee like at this news desk with a christmas hat on telling the story about what's going to come up next in the next issue um and then she's like going through papers and then she wonders what generation next is and these the way it's drawn it's like these crystals are creeping up the page and essentially cover her and the entire page in this crystallized diamond looking stuff and that of course i wasn't reading this at the time but that was uh representing what was going on in all of the x-men books at this time uh the final page of uh february 1995 oh excuse me i said 94 before this is 1995 all of the february 1995 issues featuring the mccran crystal reaching earth and engulfing it it was effectively killing all of the characters in the marvel universe in the x-books anyways uh this is because um over in Legion Quest, the crossover in the main X-Books, it was X-Books um, Legion, which he has a series coming out in February. Xavier's son traveled back in time with the purpose of killing Magneto, but he accidentally killed his father, Charles. These events wiped out all of the history and all the continuity that we know. And every X-Book was replaced for four months by a four-issue limited series with a similar name, Generation X became Generation Next, which was the four months that we had the Age of Apocalypse alternate reality, which was so cool because me as a kid, I was already reading these books. I was like, oh, okay, this is fun. I'm into it. But then when I saw Generation Next, like, I remember my excitement like going crazy that okay what is this this is so new these are the characters i love but they're doing different things and they look different and they're altered and it's just ah age of apocalypse was a good limited series and it was good it was only four months it wasn't an event that lasted nine or 12 months that took over everything and knocked out and it was just kind of a one and done and i own all four of those generation next books and i Still love them to this day. Um, let's see. Oh, in the Age of Apocalypse Earth, whereas we have the main Earth, Earth 616, in the regular Marvel Universe, the Age of Apocalypse distinction is Earth 295. So, 
not that that matters too much, but if you ever hear anyone talk about Earth 295, that's the Age of Apocalypse Earth, which now in current Marvel continuity, I'm not sure if that exists anymore because of Secret Wars and the different worlds being merged and whatever. It's comics continuity. It's always going to be some garbage or some unnecessary difficulty, but uh, I'm not sure if that still exists. Uh, the next appearance of, or chronological appearance of the main universe's Generation X is in X-Men Prime before they continue with their regular number five issue in July of 1995. Um, yeah, so that sums up my exciting issue number 12 of Carefree Black Nerd Podcast. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm enjoying this. Um, very new to podcasting as you can tell if you've made it this far <laughs> um i've had some bumps in the road a little hiccup here and there all in all i've tried to kind of stay the course and improve on just this craft um i've always been an artist i've always been an illustrator i've always uh been a writer and this is just an extension of artwork that i'd like to do because um it's it's real now, you know, my, essentially my pilot season is over. This is the, <laughs> the finale issue of this first season of Carefree Black Nerd. And, um, again, I'd like to thank everyone who's followed me on this haphazard journey and hope you stay with me because I am trying my damnedest to get better every single issue, every single day, every single week, every single month. Um, I'm always open to conversation. I'm always open to suggestions. Um, email me at carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. Um, all in all, I enjoyed the content I put out this year. Uh, I'm looking forward to the holidays. Uh, I haven't quite decided, which is kind of sad because we're at the end of the year. But if I'm going to do a week off for the beginning of the year so I might come back on the 1st I might come back on the 8th I'm not entirely sure fingers crossed it'll be the 1st um, I want everyone to enjoy your holiday uh, thank you for listening, downloading subscribing, retweeting um, hit me up on Twitter at carefreeblurred or Rain Coleman um, Instagram carefreeblacknerd Tumblr carefreeblacknerd um yeah, I'm open. I'm open for conversation. I'm open for any interaction with listeners. Uh, be sure to rate as well on iTunes, I'm on SoundCloud, I'm on carefreeblacknerd.com. I'm just trying to get better and better and better with each and every post. So, um, again, thank you all for sticking with me this far, and let's see if we can get to the next. 12 a little bit more consistently and you know just a little bit better than the first 12 so thank you from the bottom of my heart my carefree black heart (laughs) uh keep this conversation going do not hesitate to message me on any of the social media platforms or through email um i like to wish everyone a happy holidays uh chris mahana kwanzaa and uh you know, meet me back here, same nerd time, same nerd channel, different year and new season. Uh, much love, thanks.